The Tablet Show, episode 27, with guest Steve Souders. Recorded live Saturday, April 7th, 2012. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Steve Souders about making mobile web apps run faster. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to The Tablet Show. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here for your pleasure for the next hour. So, what's up, buddy? Ah, you know, I did another internet safety talk last night uh, to a group of concerned parents about their teenagers. And I, I always talk about the fundamentals, just, you know, you should have a NAT router, here's the different programs. But once you say the F word... You know, once you say Facebook, that's it. Oh, that's that. all they want. What were you thinking? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> once you say Facebook, that's all they want to talk about. So we yeah. talked about Facebook for a long time. Yeah. And uh, we were talking before the show. Actually, we were talking about this in Canada. But the the whole key to using Facebook effectively as a parent isn't so that you can post. Yeah. It's so that you can watch. Yeah. What, what I said to them was, you know, Facebook and digital mediums in general, whether it's a blog or, you know, any of these other sites are generally not good communication paths for from a parent to a child. They are good intelligence paths. They're good uh, means of embarrassment, though. Oh, when, yeah. When if the you, kids if deserve you wanna, it. If you haven't felt like you've embarrassed your teenage daughter enough, Facebook's a good way to pull that off. Exactly. You know, beats the heck out of showing up in a torn T-shirt with a, get, a car that backfires. It's so much simpler to just go, I love you so dear on their wall. Done. And I have recently done that. And I thought <laughs> I was going to get dumped on by her friends, but they were all like, 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 like. Yeah, I basically just called her out on a lie. Yeah, you know, catch a little, you can play, if, once you get a little finesse, this was my point, once you get a little finesse with Facebook and you, you get the dynamic, you can make it work for you. Yeah. But uh, it does take some practice. It does. And she hasn't blocked me yet, so... There, there you go. go. Well, I know her well. She's a good kid. She's a remarkably great kid. patient with you. Yeah, she is. <laughs> All right, sir. Let us start this mess with better know framework. Love it. What do you got for me today, buddy? Well, better know framework today is not a framework method or namespace or anything. However, it is a tool. Now, I mentioned this in the Carl Franklin show, which we did a while ago. Yep. And. This is just too cool not to reiterate. Mm. So, do you remember the Metro uh, MetroApps.WikiSpaces.com wiki that I put together where I compared uh, Silverlight 5 compatibility with WinRT? Yep. Yeah. So, it turns out Marcus Egger uh, from EPS and Code Magazine fame has taken this to a new level. Oh. He's written a tool where you can specify what platform you're going from and what platform you're going to. And we're talking WPF4, Silverlight 5, Windows Phone 7.1, and Windows 8 Metro. And check off the namespaces that you intend to use and click a little button and, you know, an hour later, because it's kind of slow. I don't know how long, how much later, but a while later, this report comes up that tells you what's there, what's not. Wow. Yeah. So it's sort of automating what you did in the wiki space. It automates what I did. And not only that, but goes from 
any platform to any platform. So if you've got a WPF app and you want to, somebody says, oh, we need this on a Windows phone, you know, guess what? No problem. <laughs> well, there is a problem. There's going to be a problem, but now you just can tell how severe the problem's going to oh, be. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. But what I like about this is as we get new versions, you're going to be able to use this tool over and over again to- yeah. uh, the new versions of WinRT, you're going to be able to use this tool over and over again to see what changed. Or if we get an update to Win Phone 7. Precisely. You know, it's going to change things. And this just quickly lets you update that whole thing. So here's uh, the URL. It's xamldialects.codeplex.com. X-A-M-L dialects, plural, dot codeplex.com. Marcus, great job, dude. I love it. Yeah, nice. So who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed, uh, you're gonna love this email because, you know, we, we don't get flame very often, but we are in this one. <laughs> okay. Uh, Martin Liversidge, uh, sent us an email regarding the tablet show number 22. And he says, Dear podcast host, which I think is an excellent way. <laughs> very clever. Uh, being a long time listener of your podcast, but I can no longer resist the urge to comment on one of your shows. Okay. In tablet show 22, you discuss Evernote and compare it to OneNote. I'm not going to criticize Evernote, which I don't use anymore, but I would like to bring your attention to a feature of OneNote perhaps you have overlooked. It is not an absolute nightmare to share OneNote notebooks across multiple machines. You can place OneNote notebooks on SkyDrive, and you can open and edit those notebooks using the native Office app, but you can also access and work with these notebooks in iOS, Android, and Windows Phone 7. And Windows 8 Metro. Mm-hmm. You Furthermore, the- you can use the Silverlight version of OneNote to edit the notebook directly in your browser. The hmm. synchronization is seamless, and storing the notebook on SkyDrive allows you to share it with friends and cooperatively edit it. An absolutely killer feature because your friends only need a web browser with Silverlight capabilities to be able to participate in the sharing. On my PC, I have all the goodness of the native app with the screen clipper, tight integration with the clipboard, the ability to save web pages and to print notes from any app that supports printing. I could go on and all this without losing access when I'm using my Android tablet, my Windows phone, and my web browser while I'm at work. Great. Okay, I guess I sound like a Microsoft sales representative, but to me, OneNote on SkyDrive is the best thing since sliced bread. I can't wait to see the next version running on Windows 8 tablet with ink and stuff. And stuff. Thank you for all the hours of interesting and entertaining podcasts that I've been able to listen to during all these years. Best regards, Martin Liversidge. All right. Um, Martin, you are correct, sir. I totally agree. Before SkyDrive, it was very hard to position a one-note notebook in a way that would allow multiple machines to access this way. But SkyDrive solves it. And considering you get 25 gigs of storage on SkyDrive for free, there is no excuse not to use it. That's right. So I'm with you, and it's worth a tablet show mug to me, so I'm shipping a tablet show mug off to Martin. And if you'd like one, send us an email at rocks at franklins.net. And there you have it. So with that, let's introduce our guest, Steve Souders. Steve is head performance engineer at Google, where he works on web performance and open source initiatives. He previously served as chief performance Yahoo. <laughs> nice. Prior to that, Steve worked at General Magic, Who Wear, and Lycos, and co-founded Helix Systems and CoolSync, S-Y-N-C. Steve is the author of high-performance websites and even faster websites. (laughs) Son of fast websites. That's not true. I'm just putting that in. He is the creator (laughs) of YSlow, one of the top 25 Firefox add-ons. He's created numerous performance tools and services, including the HTTP Archive, Kazillion 
JDrop, Control.js, and Browser Scope. He serves as the co-chair of Velocity, the Web Performance and Operations Conference from O'Reilly, and is co-founder of the Firebug Working Group. He also taught CS193H high-performance websites at Stanford. Hey, Steve, you know, you're, you might want to think about doing this for a living. Yeah, there's uh, definitely a lot of work to be done in the area of making the web faster. So, yeah, I'm, I feel like I have good job security. There's, <laughs> I guess. There's, there's another couple decades of uh, tasks to complete. Well, this is probably the, the most decorated resume bio that I've ever read on the Tablet Show. So congratulations for your vast achievements. It's great. Yeah, you know, I was listening to you guys uh, do the click and clack there, uh, getting us going. And I thought, you know, I was very impressed. You guys are, are polished. But then, you know, you rattled off some of those uh, items on the resume. And I don't know, I think for an engineer, you know, names like J-Drop and Kazillion and Y-Slow, you know, I'm not doing too bad either. Not bad. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty- I think the three of us, we should do like a tech version of Lake Wobegon. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be hilarious. Yeah, we, we, we'll, we'll go up to Harvard Square in Boston. <laughs> we'll talk about websites, website repair, and uh, the new puzzler. <laughs> oh my god I, like I, I got a bunch good. of NPR geeks on the line today totally totally <laughs> and you know Steve I gotta say I think you have permanent job security because every time we come up with a way to make a website faster developers come up with a way to make the web page bigger <laughs> yeah, yeah I think I probably used that analogy with you guys last time um, I spoke with you is it's like the hallway closet you know, you empty it out and within a week it's full again. And it's just, you know, people are going to take up as much space as they can. And, and that's what we see on web pages, on websites. You sure. know, I'm, uh, uh, the HTTP archive got mentioned there in the intro. Yeah. And it's got great trending charts about web page size. And, you know, everything's going up. I think year over year, there was a 25 or 30% increase in uh, total size of web pages. Wow. And yeah, it's just going through the roof. You know what? I, I would like to see a feature in uh, Microsoft Notepad. Yeah, don't laugh. That when you're writing an HTML file and you have an image tag and it points to a JPEG file, that's five gigs. It should go, stop that. You stop that right now. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, that's a really good point, huh? Um, we might want to take this offline because I think this could be like some some critical IP that's about <laughs> to come up. <laughs> is there's two pieces of technology out there right now? If you run plugins like Yslow and PageSpeed, I don't know if Yslow does it, but PageSpeed does. It will analyze the images in your page and actually run them through uh, Ping Crush or other image optimization routines and tell you how much space you, how much uh, you can reduce the size of those images and will actually give you the optimized images. Great. But you have to, you know, download those and then upload them to your server and push them to production. Right. And then there's another service, um, used to be called Tiny Source from James Pierce, but then when he joined Sencha, they took it over. So now it's called Sencha IO Source. And you just point your browser um, to you just change your image sources to go through their reverse proxy, kind of like a CDN. And they Whoa. will uh, resize the images on the fly. So this is really good for mobile. 
So yeah. now I've got, you know, on my front page, I've got a 600 by 400 um, photograph. But if someone's on a tiny mobile phone, it will look at the user agent and automatically resize it to whatever the appropriate screen size is. So what if you combine those two things? What if, you know, to Sencha IO source, you added the ability to also resize and optimize the uh, image? And all of that would be automated. I think that would be a great service. Shouldn't your web server just do that? Seriously, isn't this a job for Apache or IIS or, you know, just to flip a switch and say, hey, optimize this stuff for me? Isn't the web server serving it up? Well... I think that's what's fun and challenging and, and hard about our job is, you know, the web is still kind of new and technology is developing. And sure, like that's something that web servers could do. And there might even be some web servers that do that. But it's kind of like the browser too. Like we look like browsers have been around for 20 years mm. and yet we're still seeing tremendous evolution and new features in browsers year after year after year after year and basically that's what they're doing is they're seeing what are the common threads the common actions that developers are doing and let's if that is something that's common enough and makes sense let's bundle that into the browser and so i think that gets back maybe to why you guys have me on the show is people weren't always, you know, people being browser developers and, and server developers weren't always thinking about speed and performance and size. And so we have technology that is built the way it is today or last year or four years ago. And we start highlighting the benefits of making things faster, these best practices and people go, oh, okay, well, yeah, here's a good technique. And guess what? 99% of every user or every website would benefit from this. Let's build that into the browser. Let's build that into the server. So, you know, that's kind of what I try to do is I try to find these best practices. And some of them you have to do manually. If you're a web developer, you have to learn this technique. And every time you write code, you have to do this. And others, we can just burn into the network layer the client, the server. And so I agree with you. That would be, I think, a great um, feature to have in web servers. I think the place we'd see it earlier is in CDNs. Yeah, I think uh, that would be a great technology for a CDN to launch is to automatically optimize images and resize images. Listen, Richard, isn't that something that uh, your Strange Loop device does? Uh, yeah, it, it is one of the things it does as a, as a specialized device. And, uh, cause it, those, those things are complicated. I mean, one of the things you find out is that people build really weird web pages. So you're never <laughs> sure, you know, what's going to happen and never, never doubt the ability of a web designer to come up with something you didn't think of. Yeah. But, you know, I, I was thinking Steve's exactly right that bit by bit, some of these optimizations are making it into sort of the libraries. And I'm thinking specifically of ASP.NET because in ASP.NET, uh, four, well, it actually started in three, five. They added the script consolidator. So there's a library built into ASP.NET that will actually, you just list all your JavaScript files. And so you can continue to maintain them yourself separate. But when you put them through the script consolidator, it minifies them, mm. consolidates them into a single file. And that's all the browser sees, which is, uh, you know, save some round trips, get some performance benefit. Yeah. But in 4.5, they automatically browser cache it as well. 
and use hashes so that they can immediately tell if anything's changed and it'll automatically change the name. So like it's, they keep getting smarter at doing the tricks that we had to do by hand in the old days and just completely automating it for folks. Steve, does HTML5 help us at all with this kind of thing? Figuring out, uh, you know, I don't know, caching or any kind of optimization? No, I mean, there are some nice things in HTML5, but not along the uh, these sorts of optimizations, these best practices. So there's no kind of, you know, like in JavaScript, there's no kind of concatenator or module or, or dependency uh, features that have been added. And uh, I don't know, I guess that makes sense. Maybe that would be more coming in in mm. an updated version of ECMAScript uh, versus HTML. Um, but there are things in HTML5 that are good and bad for performance. Um, you know, like local storage. Um, app cache, you know, that's good for performance as well as offline. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, when people talk about HTML5, you know, we don't want to get into this, you know, semantics of the exact definition of that. People usually lump CSS3 in there. And when right. you do that, you get things like border radius, box shadow, where you can eliminate uh, HTTP requests for images. You know, we used to do four image requests, or if you really were really good, you could do one image request for some rounded corners, uh, for an image to do rounded corners. Well, now you can do that with border radius and eliminate an HTTP request, which means it's going to render faster mm. in, in many cases. Yeah. So there are things we can do in HTML5 uh, that we weren't able to do before that are going to help with performance. Well, uh, let's talk about local storage. Now, this is a, a way to, to store uh, data on the, on the client? Yeah, it's just a key value pair um, sort of idea. And I think originally maybe people thought of it as a way to do something that was kind of bigger than cookies. And so, you know, cookies are kind of a key value pair sort of idea, um, but they're limited in, in size and in, in what, how big they can be. And so local storage, you can go up to most platform, most browsers support five meg. And so hmm. you can get five meg, um, and store it on disk as key value pairs. It's restricted by domain, just like cookies. So, you know, other people, if you, you know, if, if one website saves something that's kind of confidential in there, another website can't, uh, you know, eavesdrop on that. What kind of things that, does that make sense for? Like zip codes, maybe? Like a zip code cache? I don't know oh, why, yeah. but... Uh... Oh, yeah. And, and to me, like, a lot of the places where you would use app cache, you could also use local storage. Um, local storage works when you're offline. Um, mm. You could store, you know, if you're Gmail, you could store the person's uh, uh, last uh, access, last um, requested inbox contents. Mm -hmm. You could store address books there. You could store, um, uh, yeah, other information like that. The thing that for performance and, and it's a really easy API. In fact, there was just a, a thread uh, from a guy over at Mozilla um, arguing that people should stop using local storage, and we can talk about that in a minute if you want. But one of the things that's really going for it, and I think are going to mean that it's never going to be, we're never going to be able to pull that back out on the browser, is it's a drop-dead simple API. Mm -hmm. uh, get item, set item, 
uh, I forget if it's remove items or delete items. I mean, there's like four function calls and that's it. And so it's really easy to use. And so what's happening from the performance perspective is people are using it um, for caching files and, and actually caching JavaScript and style sheets and fonts, um, uh, you know, base 64 encoded images. They're caching those in local storage because the browser disk cache just doesn't seem to be as persistent as we would expect it to be. And we can talk about that more if you want to. And so there's uh, several people, including Facebook, Google Search, Bing, that are storing their file contents. What they used to store is HTTP response bodies in disk cache. They're storing that in local storage. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm trying to think of a really good example of using that. I, I can't imagine like downloading a large database, you know, a several megabyte database, and then using that locally. Uh, I'm trying to imagine a situation in which that makes more sense to actually hit that five meg limit. Yeah, and that that's where we well, you know, it's it's um, not five meg per uh, key value pair. It's five meg total for so, your site. Yeah, for your website for the domain. So mm. you can imagine, like, if you were trying to store all of your assets uh, in there, all your scripts and style sheets and images, you could get pretty close to five meg. Especially, uh, you know, on one, you know, on one of the nice things about local storage is it's a simple API. But one of the bad things about it that Discache has is Discache has all of the history of um, caching headers and expires and right. know, cache control max age. Mm. And so if you are going to start storing assets or really any data in local storage, you have to know how to purge that data when it's no longer relevant, no longer um, up to date. Yeah, you're responsible for that. And it, I don't like it when we're duplicating what it should be existing functionality. It makes me very nervous. Like this is supposed to, this is stuff browsers have done for years, but you sort of mentioned that it's not working as well as it should. Like, what's the problem with browser disk cache? Well, oh, we don't really know. Um, you know, the, what we do know is there are studies that show that people don't have. You know, you'll put something, uh, some asset, some script, or something on your website, and you'll say, you know, the browser can cache it for ten years, and it doesn't have to check back with me. And you'll notice that uh, most people, not most, about, about half the unique users to your site do not have that resource in their cache when they hit right. your site the first time in the day. Now, it's possible that every day half your users are brand new users. I don't think that's what's happening. I think there are some other influences that are causing the disk cache to get, to get that are causing your resources that have a long life caching header to be purged when you wouldn't expect that to happen. And one of the issues is local storage is a, you know, per website cache. Right. Disk cache is shared by everybody. Yeah. So depending on the purging logic, um, something that, you know, I put in there for my website for 10 years is going to be pushed out if someone does a lot of surfing, uh, doing shopping or watching videos or f looking at photos or something like that. I know on the IE side of things, you can apply a group policy to domain-controlled PCs that will toss out all temporary internet files when the browser's closed. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's a security strategy in theory. 
Yeah, that's another issue is there's more antivirus software. And even, you know, four years ago, I, I don't think any browser had a clear the cache when I close the browser button. And now most of them do. Yeah. And, and for every browser I know of, it's not checked by default, but, you know, there's antivirus software. The browsers themselves can be clearing the cache. And one of the things that I think all the browser developers uh, realized about a year or so ago is that they really had uh, hadn't been paying attention to their, you know, caching logic and caching code. Um, you know, they hadn't looked at that for a decade. And so we saw a year and a half ago cache sizes like 10 meg or 50 meg. And I always tell the story, you know, I've got 50 gigabytes free on this laptop that I'm on. And my default cache is 50 meg. Are you kidding me? Mm. Like the number one thing I do on this laptop is surf the web. I've got 50 gig free. Take take a gig. Take 5 gig. Take yeah. 10 yeah. gig. But 50 meg is way too small. And so now we've seen over the last year, most all the browsers have increased the size of their cache. And hopefully that will help with um, better retention and disk cache. I also like the fact that they give you a choice of what things to clear out when you close the browser. Like some things I want to clear, some things I don't. Cookies, for example, I like to keep around because, you know, sometimes your your passwords are stored in there that you don't have to constantly sign on. Um, those, you know, things I may, may or may not want to clear out. Um, certainly temporary internet files I like to clear out occasionally just because, you know, who needs a lot of junk. But, uh, but yeah, I, I worry about, I worry about that from a security standpoint as well, as, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, you know, I agree with you. I, I want more granularity in what I can clear from cache. But I actually think we're. I actually think browsers are moving in the opposite direction because mm. the number of things now we have app cache and local storage. Yep. So the number of things that can be saved, um, you know, on your disk that are saved by websites is growing, and I think most users can't deal with that level of complexity. So, for example, now if you go to mobile Safari on the iPhone, there's only two choices: clear history. And the other choice is clear cookies and data. Yeah. Right? And so, like, I really don't want to do that. I just want to clear the temporary, I want to clear the disk files, right? The disk cache. Right. And to do that, I also have to clear cookies, right? Yeah. And that's not right. That's not right. <laughs> and I'm not even sure, I guess, clear cookies and data, I could do some testing. I'm guessing that probably also clears local storage and app cache. Do I really want to do that? Clear my offline Stuff that's going to help me if I'm offline on the train or on the airplane flying home, uh, not necessarily. Yeah. So I, I agree with you, but you know we're we're maybe more on the techie side than yeah ninety yeah. percent of the, the people average mortal won't know the difference. Yeah, yeah. This portion of the tablet show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight Controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. 
Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting The Tablet Show. Hey, we got a question from Seth Juarez via Twitter who wants you to compare and contrast Canvas versus SVG. What are the performance differences, etc.? Help me choose. Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, I uh, don't do much development with SVG and Canvas. So I'll kind of reiterate stuff that I've heard from people doing talks at Velocity over the last year. To me, it's uh, more about what you're trying to accomplish. Uh-huh. Um, like if you have, you know, just kind of um, uh, icons or standard graphics uh, that you're trying to draw versus more complex UI elements. Um, you know, I know, for example, that um, Ben and Dion with the uh, cloud-based code editor that they did, did almost all of that in SVG. So mm. I think it's less about performance and more about, you know, it's kind of like saying what's more performant, um, C++ or JavaScript. Yeah. It's like, well, it kind of depends on, you know, what you're trying to do sure. and also, you know, what your preference, your programming preferences are. So I think if you look at the application that you have, what you're trying to accomplish, um, and then you look at what SVG and Canvas can do to fulfill that, that's going to make the decision for you more than a performance trade-off. And I, to be honest with you, I don't know anyone doing, I haven't seen any studies trading off performance between SVG and Canvas. I think it's a little bit apples and oranges. Hmm. Well, I know SVG is vector-based, and uh, Canvas offers pixel operations. I'm not sure what, you know, what that means when it comes down to your app on your devices and things like that, but um you know, certainly certainly graphics uh, vector graphics tend to be faster if you're doing a lot of raster stuff. Yeah, and if you know, like I said, like if you're drawing uh pie charts or something like that, um, you know, you could do that in SVG. Um you could also do that in Canvas, but it's probably going to be a lot more complex. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I, I don't think they're comparable technologies in a lot of ways. They're just both new to HTML5. Yeah. So uh, what about uh, getting into async scripts? Like some of the new JavaScript techniques seem to be much smarter on creating new performance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a loaded yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know... Yeah, okay. In HTML5, we now officially have defer and async attributes for the script tag. Yep. You know, like, yeah, okay. You know, uh, uh, people don't, yeah, people can use those. Um, you know, it's really kind of hard because I would love to just slap an async attribute on every script tag in my page. Sure. And if you use the async attribute, you basically are telling the browser that you guarantee uh, with 100% certainty that that script will never do document.write. Mm. Well, how many of us <laughs> can guarantee that? Yeah, I know, don't I, know do that. I can't guarantee <laughs> that for any script I'm getting from some third-party widget right. or ad. And to be honest with you, like half the scripts on pages are third-party widgets and ads. And even if I'm at a company where we have like more than five developers, 
I can't guarantee that the scripts that my that I own are never going to have document.write in them. Right. And so, you know, there's this, I don't know why, you know, people haven't picked up on this. Like two years ago, I blogged about Opera has this, you know, uh, option that's off by default that you can defer all, you can load every script async. And it actually, if you do that in other browsers and some async script does document.write after the document is done loading, the browser will crash or the page will get wiped out and be completely blank. And in Opera, when you turn this feature on, it handles document.write correctly. Even after the page is done loading, you then load a script async that does document.write. It remembers where that script was in the DOM and the stuff that gets document.written, it inserts back into the DOM in the appropriate place. I don't know how they do that, right? But it's been in there for like a year, year and a half, two years. That's really clever. Why yeah. can't all the browsers have that? Yeah. And then I then I could add async everywhere. And mm. then the other problems, I've blogged about this before too. The other problems, I tried to start a thread about this on what WG and just got buried in in all the responses and, and debates against it. And I think it just died. But um, you know, what I really want is the problem is I can load a script async and when that so suppose, I don't know, suppose it's 500K, um, which is not outlandish at all. There's mm -hmm. a lot of scripts that are 500K and they're compressed. So it's actually, you know, a meg or meg and a half. Yeah. Suppose I have 500K compressed, it's 130K. I loaded async, it hits the browser. And when it hits the browser, even though it's async, it hits the browser, the browser has to parse and execute that 500K of JavaScript. Yep. You know, if I'm on, you know, my nice new MacBook Air here, that's going to be pretty quick. If I'm on a mobile device, yeah. That's that's going to be pretty slow. I've noticed this more and more with mobile devices in general is that when you load the regular web, and I've always loved this idea that why do we have a separate mobile page? Why with a, these browsers sound now so smart in the mobile devices, they should be able to do anything, but they can't handle the rendering. They, the phone really bonks. The page stays blank for a long time. And it's just like they're running out of memory trying to render some of these big pages. Well, that's what happens when the browser is parsing JavaScript. It doesn't respond. The UI is, is locked. Right. And so, like, and the thing that's really bad about this is it's out of context for what the user is doing. You yeah. know, if I click on a button and when I click on that, you have to parse 500K of JavaScript. Hmm. Well, if the UI is unresponsive for a while, I can kind of figure, oh, well, I clicked on this button and the machine is busy. I have to wait a little bit. Okay. But if you're loading some scripts in the background, like I typed a URL and the page appears and I start trying to scroll it or click on menu items mm. and it doesn't respond to me, like that's completely out of context. The last thing I did was three seconds ago loading this URL, the page appeared why are you not responding to me? Right. And the user has no idea that in the background, the phone is parsing 500K of JavaScript. Yeah, they think it's right. a bug. So, so you know, what we need is we need you know, some more markup that says, like, download this script, save it to cache, but don't execute it until I call like a execute uh, function on the script element. Um, so we need, we need some more features like that. The other thing is, with async and defer, there's two main problems. One, 
if I've gone far enough to identify scripts that are not critical to the page that I want to mark them defer or async, I might also like to defer the parsing of that because I know that's going to lock up my phone and, and potentially other browsers. The other thing I want is um, I have a limited number of TCP connections. Desktop browsers will have more, but phones you know, can be in the single digits. Yeah. Well, it turns out all the browsers, even when you say script defer or async, it immediately takes a TCP connection. Even though I've said this thing is less important, it immediately takes a TCP connection and starts downloading that. So now the main image in the page or my logo or my navigation you know, backgrounds or something like that, they might get pushed out because there's not a TCP connection available for them. So something that I've already kind of designated as a lower priority takes a priority when it comes to the limited pool of TCP connections. Yeah. So we also need either default browser behavior or additional markup to say, oh, and you can also delay the download of this. Yeah. So we made a little progress. We have the async and defer tag. They're in the spec. We're still, you know, the, the you know, hardcore developers are still, you know, years ahead of where the, the current HTML5 support is. Steve, you're all about performance on the web, and you've built quite a, quite a few tools to, to help us with performance. Why, why don't we talk a little bit about some of those tools? And uh, maybe some that you have written that other people have uh, written that, you've, that you use extensively. Yeah, that sounds cool. We we could spend more time talking about me and my work. Okay, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Enough about you. Let's talk about me. What do you think of me? Let's talk about you. I got that wrong. Switch that. Reverse it. That's an old joke anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm lucky. Both at Yahoo and uh, here at Google, um, both of these companies have just been, you know, incredibly supportive of letting me spend a on you know almost all my time i think every you know i can't think of any code i haven't written that i haven't open sourced yeah and so you know because i get to do that as a full-time job there's a lot of open source tools out there a lot of free tools that i've built um and i think also you know maybe it's just because the market it's hard to make money on on dev tools there's also as you mentioned a lot of other awesome tools out there that are free and open source um, I know when we were talking about uh, arranging this this um, interview, we talked about mobile, and that's certainly where I've been focusing for the last year or so. And that's kind of interesting from a couple of perspectives. One is, you know, f for about two years, I've been saying there's an opportunity for someone to step into the mobile performance space. Mm -hmm. and be and become the guru because everything we did on desktop performance starting you know 6 or 7 years ago with you know when I formed the exceptional performance team over at Yahoo and we got why slow out and we started you know evangelizing best practices that whole thing that's happened over the last 6 years we basically are going to repeat on mobile wow and we we already know um what needs to be done all we have to do is repeat that process in form factors and best practices target, targeted at mobile devices. And I said that for about a year and no one responded. So I finally 
a year ago, I said, okay, I'm stopping everything and I'm going to switch and focus on mobile. And so it hasn't been that hard because I was there and I saw all the things we needed on desktop. So I just said, okay, well, let's start creating those things on mobile. So like one of the things I did is drop dead simple. It was the first thing I did. Gosh, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> that was a long, that was a long time ago. I was, what was it? I had switched out of my previous role and just started working on performance at Yahoo and they didn't have a desk for me at work. And we were in the middle of a remodel at home. And I said, that's okay. I'll work at home. And so I was working upstairs in what used to be our attic. It was now going to be our new second story. And it was just framed out. So it was just plywood floor, stud walls. And I had a bunch of PCs up there. And I was doing performance testing, running through the Alexa Top 1000. And I built an iframe. Uh, you know, that you would load the page into and you could track the iframes on load time. And I would run through the Alexa Top 1000 and see how fast they were running on different browsers. And so, you know, up until six months ago, there was no way to load a page in a mobile browser and see how long it took. Hmm. What would you use for what would you use for that? I'm on the iPhone, I'm, you know, on a train or something like that, and it just took forever to load Fandango.com. And I want to know how long it took. It seemed like it took 40 seconds. How long did it take? What are you going to do? There's nothing you can do. So I built this simple iframe thing, which was just reminded me so much of what I built seven years ago um, for desktop. And it's called loadtimer.org, drop dead simple. So you're on the train and you want to see how long it takes to load Fandango. Mm. You go to loadtimer.org. It opens a page. Um, that has an iframe in it. You can type the URL you want to load. It loads it in the iframe and it tells you how long it took the iframe to load. So, you know, again, just I guess the, the point of that's loadtimer.org, very simple tool. If you want to just load some URLs on your mobile device and see how long they take, you can do that. Um, but kind of the funny part of that story is it's just a repeat of something that I built on desktop seven years ago. And, you know, I really, and, and it's not just, you know, for people building tools, it's also for the people working on browsers. You know, we have uh, the Android browser comes out and at the current time, almost every browser, desktop browser would open uh, uh, six or more connections per host name, totaling a total of, of, you know, 20 to 200 TCP connections max. The Android browser would open four connections max across all host names. How do you do that? Like, we know that this is really important, right? And so even people working on browsers need to look at the enhancements that have been made in browsers over the last four years for performance reasons and make sure that we're echoing those on, uh, on mobile browsers. Cache size would be another great example. You know, I don't know what, what it is. Safari desktop It's probably you know, uh, 10 to 50 megabytes and, you know, both the Android browser and iPhone browsers come out and they have like four megabyte cache sizes, just way too small. Yeah. You know, I tell, I tell that story. I've, I've got seven movies on my iPhone and I have a four megabyte cache. Are you kidding me? Like I'll give you Iron Man two at 1.7 gig. Give me 500 meg of disc cache on my iPhone, please. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and you you can't simulate this worth a bean, right? Like it really just has to be tested on the phone to actually know. Yeah, yeah, and you can't find documentation on it. 
cache size is really hard to test. So any, anyway, we, I, I kind of took us off the thread there. We were talking about tools. And the thing that's interesting about mobile tools is it kind of throws another curve ball in there because with desktop laptop browsers, you're not typically on a carrier network. Well, on the mobile device, I could be on Wi-Fi, but I could also be on a carrier network. Right. And so that makes it harder when you're debugging. And I'll walk through some of these tools and 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 we'll see you know, uh, why that makes it harder. So I'll kind of go from really simple and and limited to really powerful and more complex. So it's that complexibility curve that we know is is always going from the lower left to the upper right. As you get uh, more features, it gets harder to use. Mm. So we'll start we'll start on the on the lower left where it's simple but somewhat limited. You can use um, this thing called MobyTest from Blaze.io. If you go to blaze.io slash mobile, they have something that's a lot like webpagetest.org. If you don't know webpagetest.org, uh, please check it out. It's great for testing performance for desktop browsers. But these guys from Blaze, who just got acquired by Akamai a few months ago, they built something like that for mobile devices. So even if you don't own a phone with a browser, you can, in your, in your desktop browser, you can go to blaze.io slash mobile, and they give you this form where you type a URL, you know, www.amazon.com, and you can pick, load this on an iPhone or an Android or a tablet, hmm. and you pick the one that you want and, uh, and hit return. And after like 40 seconds, it will show you um, the waterfall chart for that page loading. It will show you screenshots from the device that you chose of that page loading uh, it can give you a page speed report, so you can do a performance analysis of the mobile version of that website. And so this is really cool. Now, it's really, really easy. You don't even have to have, uh, you don't have to install any tools on your phone. You don't even have to have a phone. Just have to have a URL. Yeah, you just have to have a browser. Yeah. So it's really, really cool, but it's limited. So the only location of their phones is in Canada. So like I wanted to test this feature on Google search that it turned out wasn't deployed in Canada yet. And huh. so I said, oh, well, I'll try this on blaze.io. I loaded it, and I didn't see the feature that I was, I was looking for. And it turned out from Ottawa, Canada, I'm getting the Canadian version of Google search, which didn't have this performance feature I was trying to debug. Well, guess what, guys? I just did a Moby test for m.netrocks.com, which is our other show. Maybe you've heard of it. And our... Uh, we're in the 40th percentile. Our website is faster than 40% of tested websites. So, I don't know. Could be better. Could be better. Well, I'm not going to comment. <laughs> that sucks, is what he's saying. You're in the bottom half. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you're, you're top half, but still, you, you, know, you, you should be top 10%. Especially you guys. We should be. And you know what? This is crazy because that website is really scaled down. That mobile website that's really crazy. Yeah. So um, that's one limitation is uh, it's in Canada. Uh, the, it's connected to Wi-Fi networks. So if you want to test different carrier networks or any carrier network, you can't do that right now. And, you know, it's nice that they have two very popular devices. But if you want to test, you know, Nexus Gallery, Galaxy versus Nexus S, you can't do that. You know, you can only use the devices that they put online. Right. Yeah. So then another thing you can do is you can use this thing called PCAP Perf. And this is from the uh, guys at Google 
who do uh, Google PageSpeed out of uh, Cambridge. Um, so it's actually pcapperf.appspot.com. If you search for pcapperf, um, you'll be able to find it. I don't think there's any name conflict there. Um, and pcap is a, a packet capture file. If you use Wireshark or um, you know TCP dump, you're probably familiar with pcap files. The problem is pcap files are very low level. And so what you can do, so, so this is very cool. So this lets me, what if I want to test my device, which isn't on Blaze.io, and I want to test it for my geographic location. Mm -hmm. right? And the other thing about Blaze is if I'm testing like a beta version of my website that isn't publicly visible yet, Blaze.io can't reach it. So you have to have a public URL. What if I have a URL that's inside the firewall and I want to test it on my special device for my specific geolocation. So you can't do that with Blaze. So you can do that with PCAP Perf. What you do is you start a Wi-Fi hotspot on your laptop. You connect your phone to that Wi-Fi hotspot. And you run Wireshark or TCP dump um, on your laptop. And it's capturing all the packets that your phone is now requesting. So you navigate to your inside the firewall beta version of your product. And that packet capture is saved on your laptop. So when you're done, you take that PCAP file from Wireshark or TCP dump and you run it through PCAP perf. And what PCAP perf does is it converts it to the HAR file format, HTTP archive file format, which is now the standard file format for web performance tools. And once you have a HAR format, you can run it through things like PageSpeed and Waterfall, HTTP Waterfall uh, viewers. And so now, again, I can get a PageSpeed re report. I can get a waterfall chart for this mobile experience um, from my phone. So that's really cool. That solves, again, it, it's a little more complex. i got to set up this, um, this uh, uh, Wi-Fi hotspot. Um, but it's not that hard, and it gives me a lot more features. Um, so we've climbed that complexity curve a little bit, but it's not too bad. But now... I've had to do that over Wi-Fi. What if I want to test my mobile phone on <gasps> a carrier network? Don't right? worry, crazy. Dun, dun. <laughs> so there really aren't um, any tools for doing that. I, I haven't, uh, you know, the new um, uh, Chrome for Android has uh, uh, remote debugging tools. I'm not sure that they give you a waterfall chart. I, I should go check that. Um, but at least up until that, there wasn't really anything you could do. So, so something that I built was this thing. So it turns out you can't build plugins like Firebug uh, with a waterfall, you know, uh, HTTP waterfall viewer. You can't build plugins for mobile browsers, but mobile browsers, at least every one that I've seen, do run bookmarklets. And so there's a lot you can do with a bookmarklet. So I built this um, mobile performance bookmarklet. Uh, you can find it if you go to my website, stevesouders.com. And you can do things like, you know, like it's crazy what we cannot do in our mobile browsers. You're on the train. Fandango took a long time to load. Suppose you want to look at document source. No browser, at least none that I know of, lets you look at document source. Mm. How crazy is that? Yeah. Source is one of the most important things we, we use as developers. Yeah, so, I can't. I can't write JavaScript without that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so I wrote a bookmarklet that um, you can look at document source. I wrote a bookmarklet that will let you look at local storage. 
I wrote a bookmarklet that will list um, the HTTP resources in the page, things like that. Now the problem is, so that's one thing, this mobile performance bookmarklet is very cool. Now you can start getting access to all of this performance-related data on your mobile device. The problem is I really don't want to look at a document source listing on this tiny screen. Yeah. And so I built this other service called JDrop. It kind of stands, uh, it's, it's like JSON in the cloud. And so you can uh, register, you can create an account at jdrop.org, and you can log into JDrop on your phone. And now these bookmarklets, almost all of them have a little button that says, okay, well, run the bookmarklet. Oh, I'm looking at document source. Wow, this is impossible to read on my tiny screen. Oh, look, here's this button. Upload it to JDrop. And since you're already logged into JDrop, it's using OAuth. And so I click the upload to JDrop, and it saves that in jdrop.org under your account. And now on your desktop with a bigger screen, you can log into jdrop.org and see that same data. And of course, by default, all the data is private, but you can share it with your friends. You can make it public. And so it um, lets you debug stuff more easily and also create an archive. So you can do things like save the document source version or the local storage keys being used today and next week and the week after. And you can get this uh, kind of history or archive about how your mobile website has been changing over time. Um, so, you know, that's a, a good collection of tools. You know, load timer is maybe the simplest thing, um, but then you can use blaze.i mobile, uh, uh, blaze.io mobile slash mobile. Uh, mm -hmm. Very easy to use, but um, it's going to be Wi-Fi from Canada just on their devices. You can do PCAP perf, set up your own Wi-Fi hotspot, so you can do any uh, device from any geolocation where you are. Um, over any URL, whether it's public or inside your firewall, but it's only going to be Wi-Fi. And then if you want to test on a real carrier network right now, your best bet is to use these bookmarklets, um, mobile perf bookmarklet off my site. Um, but pretty soon, I would expect in the next few months, we're going to start seeing um, apps that you can install on your phone, probably start in Android first, uh, and you'll be able to start getting waterfall charts straight from your phone. But we're a little ways away from that. The Blaze.io guys just open source their um, device uh, app uh, code. So someone I would expect pretty quickly is going to pick up that code and build um, apps that developers can download to get that kind of vi visibility on their mobile devices. But we're That's not awesome. That. Yeah, yeah, that'll be great when those come down. I know I'm going to be the first one to to uh, install them. I've seen a couple early versions of those and have those on my phone, and it's really powerful. Steve, what do you think about live instrumentation, stuff like uh, Boomerang? Yeah. You know, one thing um, that I'm very excited about is about six months ago, you know, Google Analytics is huge, right? Like, yeah. if you look at the HTTP archive, um, you know, uh, right now I'm crawling the top 100,000 uh, URLs on the web uh, worldwide, about 60% of them, I think even more than 60%, use Google Analytics. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they're tracking impressions and conversions and things like that. And like, it's pretty easy to track page load time, right, with JavaScript. Yep. So about At the client 60, side. Yeah, on the client side. 
And so about six months ago, the Google Analytics guys released um, some new, a new version of the Google Analytics JavaScript that measured page load time and saves that uh, under your website's account. So it's under, I think if you look, content, Google Analytics, it's under content site speed. Um, so now you can get page load times. Um, and so, you know, what's really cool is the, uh, you can start doing that now. Now, the way that Google Analytics is doing it is using this thing, this kind of new thing, um, the uh, navigation timing spec out of the W3C. Right, uh, the part of here, HTML5. Yeah, the folks here at Google and uh, the folks from the IE team at Microsoft work together on this spec. Uh, it's a great spec. It's pretty simple uh, to use as a developer. And now it's in you know Chrome, IE, Firefox, uh, most desktop browsers. It's still, um, uh, unfortunately, on mobile, it's only in Android. I think it might also be on Windows Mobile. And I heard last week it's on a new build in BlackBerry. I'll, I haven't tested that. So, But anyway, so now, at least for me, I can go into Google Analytics for my site and I can see mobile page load times from real users um, on Android 4 devices. So that's pretty cool. It's limited, but it's pretty cool. And as more mobile browsers get updated, we'll have that um, timing information from uh, more uh, different types of devices. Now, Boomerang is a solution you mentioned. is kind of goes beyond Google Analytics. It uses the nav timing API, which is really super accurate. Um, but if you're in a browser like the iPhone, you know, a pretty popular phone uh, that doesn't support nav timing, they use other techniques to measure page load time. So okay. with Boomerang, you can actually get more uh, measurements across a wider variety of mobile devices. I just like the idea that the, I like Boomerang's tunability that you get. You can use the default sort of beacon method for when is a page finished loading. But if you've got tricks in your page and you've got particular points to say, okay, now the page is usable, you, it's easy to hook your code into that and say, okay, this is my measurement. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, there's a, I mentioned the navigation timing spec. There's one called the user timing spec that isn't out yet that will do that. But you're right, that's already in Boomerang. And Boomerang yeah. is open source. It came uh, out of Yahoo. It's actually based on JavaScript code I wrote there when I first started doing performance stuff seven years ago. Um, but um, I think mostly Philip Tellis was the guy working on that, you know, basically rewrote the whole thing and got them to open source it. So if you search for Yahoo Boomerang, you'll be able to find the code up on GitHub. And Philip is actually building a company around that called lognormal.com um, that is providing a service. If you want to deploy that code, that Boomerang code, uh, he's providing a backend that will give you a data warehouse and charts um, for viewing that data. And But you're absolutely right. In, in addition to the default page load time, you can also get measurements for specific things. Like you might want to know when did this widget appear in the page. And right. certainly if you're doing Web 2.0 apps where there's only one page load time, but the user might be in your app for five or 55 minutes, you have other things like they clicked on compose or they clicked on send or, and you want to track the time of all of those. Boomerang gives you an API for doing that. Um, and uh, it also has other features like you can 
measure the bandwidth that your user currently has. Um, so it's very cool. And, and I think your original question was, what did I think about these real-time measurements? You can also do things, you know, the, the, the two main alternatives in the performance world, we call this um, real user monitoring or RUM and synthetic testing, which is where I've got, I'm doing something like blaze.io or pcapperf. I've got uh, a lab and I'm loading the same URL over and over and over again in this lab. That's right. real valuable and it's a very controlled environment. So I can change a variable, like make a page a little bigger or make some optimization. And in a very controlled environment, I can see the impact of that. But uh, what we know from experience is these synthetic times that you have are very different in absolute terms from what you see in the world, real yeah. world. So these synthetic times often are two to five times faster than what real users are experiencing. So if you're doing synthetic testing and it says, wow, my mobile page loads in 1.2 seconds, it's probably, for most of your users, taking two to eight seconds for that page to load. Yeah. And so if all you have is synthetic testing, it's, you're not getting you know, the, the ground truth. And so it's really important to do both. It's good to do synthetic testing as you're doing development. But once you push something out, you need this ROM, this real user data. And Boomerang and Google Analytics are two great ways to do that. And the other thing that's awesome, like we were just talking about a minute ago, they're both free. Yeah. Awesome. And I like that, you know, I use synthetic testing to benchmark to answer the question, is my new site slower than my old site? Because I can compare it, you know, one number to another in a synthetic test site. But I've never been able to build synthetic tests that really reflect what the production environment's going to do. Exactly. So I, I guess you have to do both. There's really no way around it. I just, I've, I've been a big advocate in the, in the past year or so just saying, you know what? If you got to instrument production, you got to, got to, got to. That's the thing we're not doing. And, you know, instrument production, you'll find out an awful lot of truth in a big hurry. Yeah. You, you, you can't beat your customers for effective load testing. Exactly. That's right. You know, yeah, crowdsource the data. And, yeah. and you know, it's funny, like, um, you know, uh, you know, we're all geeks, right? You know, so you go to Velocity and, and there's, there'll be these, you know, somewhat heated debates about synthetic testing versus uh, RUM. And, you know, really, it's really not a debate. You need both. Yep, I agree. And, yeah, and so look for both solutions. Well, gentlemen, uh, while you were talking, I had an intern take a look at our mobile site and uh, find out where the bottleneck is, and it, it was because the cache got temporarily turned off. So we are back up in the 80th percentile. Nice. M.NetRocks.com. Yep. That's not bad. Yeah, that's not bad, but you know, if you think about mobile devices... Um, you know, if I just uh, opened my browser and went to your URL, it takes two seconds for the phone to establish a radio link. Yeah. So you got to you got to add that. The user doesn't know how much is your your code right. taking to load the page versus the phone to establish a connection. Sure. So again, like you guys, really, er, er, everyone on the web has to shoot to be in the top ten percent. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. That's good to know. Another thing, another thing that's going on here is just the data that's coming into this phone app, this mobile app. We basically have the last 20 shows and all of their descriptions. So while it's not a lot of data, it's, you know, it's, it's data. Yeah. So you could la maybe lazy load that as could a could lazy load the descriptions. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. 
All right. Well, Steve, thanks very much. Thanks for all your work on all your tools and in helping us identify these performance issues. And man, it's just great to talk to you and come back again. Yeah, it's always fun. You guys, I'm so impressed with uh, how smooth you are on air and how much technology you know. It's always a really lively, engaging discussion. Well, great. Have me back anytime. All right. Come on back. And we'll see you next time on The Tablet Show. Tablet Show.